Well, today I am continuing our without series. We've been talking about some things that we can live without so that we can really live. And Pastor Bill talked to you uh, last week about living without worry. But today I want to talk to you about living without compromise. And I guess we should start by asking, is all compromise bad? Is all compromise bad? I mean, I think there's been some confusion on this and the recent uh, uh, presidential campaign, people were indicating that certain candidates were really, really good because they were promising to never, ever compromise. And other people were indicating that because we have had so many politicians refusing to compromise, no progress has been made on really important issues. And living without compromise may be a strange thing to discuss on Mother's Day weekend because um, getting kids to compromise is one of the great tools that parents often use. I remember when our kids were young, we often had them split meals in restaurants or we would have them split desserts or some other treat that they were having and that always seemed to lead to a fight. Somebody always pouted or was upset or cried because they got the bigger half, you know. No matter how you cut it, they, the other one got the bigger half. And so it was a big problem until we came up with a compromise. Our compromise was this. We would have one of our girls cut whatever it was they were splitting, and the other would get to choose which half they were going to have. It worked great, and it made our kids into little scientific engineers, you know? I mean, they were extremely precise on how they would cut that uh, item that they were splitting because they knew they were going to get the smaller half if there was a smaller half. It was a great compromise. And compromise is also what solves many disagreements in marriage. When a husband and wife can't agree, they try to find a compromise that's agreeable to both of them. How this works in my marriage is Jill and I always compromise. I admit I'm wrong, and she agrees with me. <laughs> that tends to be our compromise. So in politics and in relationships and in some business deals, compromise might be a good thing. But there are some times when compromise just doesn't work. Years ago, we moved into a rental house in Southern California, and we found out in that house that you cannot compromise with cockroaches and crickets. There is no compromise with cockroaches and crickets. I mean, we moved into this rental, and it had both. And the soft sounds of crickets may be really nice when you're out for a walk in the evening or camping in the woods, but it's really irritating when the entire inside of the wall right by your headboard is infested with hundreds of crickets. And after we had lived there for three months and the owner tried his best to get rid of all the crickets and couldn't, we moved out. We actually moved directly across the street. But one of our neighbors shared with me why there were so many bugs in that house. Apparently, the previous tenant just couldn't stand to kill anything, even a bug. And so she would simply scoop the bug up and put it outside. But you can't 
compromise with cockroaches and crickets. You can't simply say to a cockroach or to a cricket, look, as long as you stay in that corner or on your side of this line, we will tolerate you. It doesn't work that way. We all know that even one bug in your house is too many. It's a matter of all or nothing. When it comes to cockroaches and crickets, and I'm learning stink bugs, compromise is a sign of failure. In a similar way, spiritual compromise doesn't work. You can't compromise on what is true and what is false. You can't compromise on what is evil and what is holy, what is sin and what is not. And yet it seems people often try to strike a compromise between what the Bible teaches and what they decide to believe or how they decide to behave. It is like they think that they can just let that small area of compromise occupy a corner of their lives or that they can kind of scoop it up and put it outside of their spiritual life thinking that they will be okay. But when it comes to spiritual compromise, compromise is always a sign of failure. And that doesn't change based on what popular opinion around us believes or decides is politically correct. And it never has. It was the founder of our commonwealth, William Penn, who said, right is right even if everyone is against it, and wrong is wrong even if everyone is for it. Right is right even if everyone is against it, and wrong is wrong even if everyone is for it. So let's talk about what the Bible says about living without compromise, and let me point out three important truths. The first truth is this. I can't live without compromise while adjusting the truth. I can't live without compromise while adjusting the truth. The Bible is clear. It isn't a good thing when people try to change God's truth. And most of us here today have come to the place where we believe that God has revealed his truth in the pages of the Bible. And if you're here and you aren't sure that you believe that yet, that is absolutely okay. This is a safe place for you to ask questions, for you to have doubts. And we would be glad to sit down with you and share with you the evidence that has led us to come to the conclusion that the Bible is God's truth. And I know that some today are teaching that it has been changed throughout the years through all sorts of different translations or by men with different agendas. But researching the history of the Bible shows that that just isn't true. Research doesn't back that up. Again, Pastor Biller, I would be glad to sit down with you and explain the integrity of this Bible that I'm holding with the original documents. But I can't spend a lot of time on that Today, So here's what the Bible says about not adjusting the truth that we find there. In Deuteronomy 12, it says this, You must be careful to do everything I command you. Don't add anything to what I tell you, and don't take anything away. Later, you can read the additional scripture referenced in your notes from Revelation 22. It actually spells out curses and punishment for those who add to or subtract from the word of God. Yet attempting to compromise what the Bible says is real common today. We live in a very interesting time and a very inconsistent world. 
I mean, we have people constantly screaming for tolerance while showing extreme intolerance. They're screaming for tolerance, but they're showing extreme intolerance. And we live in a time where Christian people scream for biblical values while failing to act and show the love that the Bible teaches. You know, John 3.16 used to be the most quoted verse of Scripture. That's the Scripture that said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that if we believe in him, we can have eternal life. That's no longer the most quoted Scripture. You know what the most quoted Scripture is. It's Matthew 7, verse 1, that says, Do not judge, or you will be judged. It's an interesting thing. Most often that verse is quoted by people who aren't even trying to follow the teachings of Jesus. They're not even trying to follow uh, the lifestyle Jesus has spelled out, but they quote the words of Jesus not to judge, and it may be the only words that they know. Now, ironically, often when people quote that verse, do not judge or you will be judged, they are actually judging when they quote those verses, they're actually judging. They are judging people around them as being judgmental, or at least what they consider judgmental. And because Jesus said this, many assume it's wrong to pass judgment of any sort, and that people should be allowed to do whatever they feel is right. But that can't be what Jesus meant. Because just 15 verses later, in the same chapter, he tells us to judge. In that verse, Jesus indicates that we're supposed to look at the way a person lives, the fruit of a person's life, and judge whether or not they're a false prophet or not. And the Bible tells us to avoid angry people and divisive people and those whose sins may rub off on us. And it tells us that spiritually mature people train themselves to distinguish between good and evil. And you know what all of that requires? Judging. It all requires judging. You see, many have tried to adjust the truth by using the words of Jesus to mean something totally different than Jesus meant when he said them. And the problem in our world is people are trying to download a God update. They're trying to download a God update. And uh, it's an interesting thing. And by the way, it's a problem on both sides of the equation. People who don't like the things that the Bible teaches about sexual relations being reserved for a husband and a wife uh, try to download a God update. And those who are concerned about uh, and want to be able to be impaired by chemicals, they want to download a God update. And Christians who don't like what the Bible says about baptism or about giving or about submitting to government and church leaders seem to want to download a God update. And the whole attitude is God is out of date, that God needs to change to match the time. But Scripture is really clear that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Look at what Hebrews 13, verse 8 says. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so do not be attracted by strange new ideas. And Malachi 3, 6 says, I am the Lord, and I do not change. And James 1, 17 says, Whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heaven. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. 
So the first truth is I can't live without compromise while adjusting the truth. And adjusting the truth is something that happens so subtly it often isn't even recognized. I mean, no one who is a follower of Jesus wakes up one morning and says, you know what I think I'll do today? I think I'll compromise what the Bible says. I think I'll adjust the truth. I'll change what the Bible says. But in very small shifts over a period of time, compromise tends to happen even in the hearts and lives of people who are totally sold out for Jesus, even in the hearts and lives of people who want to live without compromise. So let me give you five warning signs that you can look for in your life that might indicate the danger of spiritual compromise. And before I do, let me just share that if you feel defensive while I'm talking about any of these, it might be God's Holy Spirit trying to nudge you about the danger of compromise in your life. So let's look at them. The first is your belief changes based on your desire. Your belief changes based on your desire. Often when we're tempted to engage in a sin, we tend to suddenly start doubting that it really is a sin at all. I can't tell you how many people who are involved in sexual sin have explained to me that the Bible really doesn't speak against it after all. Or people who are upset with our government want to explain that failing to pay taxes or disobeying the laws of the land really isn't a sin despite what scripture clearly teaches. The second one is your belief changes based on your relationships. This is probably one of the most common where compromise creeps in. Someone you love announces that they're participating in a lifestyle that you've always believed to be opposed to God's plan. And you love that person. And so you adjust what you believe about that lifestyle and you start defending it as harmless. Or you fall in love and living by God's standards would cost you way too much money. And so you change what you believe about certain truths in the Bible. Our relationships can often cause us to compromise. The third is you discover that the Bible never really meant what scholars always knew it said. It's a discovery you make all of a sudden. And this one generally happens when one of the first two are true. You're struggling with something that the Bible teaches. And then you read a blog because we all know all of the blogs on the internet are scholarly and uh, always right. Or you hear a teacher who explains some recently discovered truth about the Greek language or the Hebrew language that the Bible was written in and that that change could mean that the Bible really doesn't mean what the smartest Bible scholars for the past 2,000 years have taught that it meant. Now, as a person with 28 college units of Greek, I can tell you that usually these new discoveries that are supposedly based on Greek language are generally not scholarly. They cannot be trusted and especially when they change the definition of sin or God's will, they're usually just someone's wishful thinking and they're often a result of compromise. Number four, you point out that's from the Old Testament. Now, there are some things in the Old Testament law 
that are specifically done away with in the New Testament. Dietary laws and animal sacrifices and keeping the Sabbath. But often when someone is trying to justify a compromise about a subject, they point out that most of the scripture about that subject are in the Old Testament. And when they say this, the implication is that God has somehow changed from Old Testament times to New Testament times. And if you think he has, reread those scriptures that we just looked at about God not changing. And again, if you have questions on this, I would be glad to answer them. And then number five, you avoid listening to teaching on certain subjects. Sometimes when you decide to skip church when the message is about a subject that makes you uncomfortable, it indicates that you've compromised in this area. This could be when the church talks about forgiving other people who have hurt you or serving or giving or gossip or sexual purity or getting into a growth group. And sometimes people avoid these subjects because... They think they already know what will be said, but God promises to speak to us, to bless us every time his word is taught. Every time his word is taught, God has promised to bless us. And when we avoid a subject, we are closing the door for Jesus to speak to us. So these are five warning signs of spiritual compromise. And again, let me say, if you're feeling defensive, I really believe God may be speaking to you. So don't dismiss what God may be trying to say. Let's move to the second truth. I can live without compromise without being a jerk. I can live without compromise without being a jerk. Often when someone indicates that they are going to refuse to compromise, that they're going to stand their ground, that they're going to stand firm, that they're going to hold to the truth, what they really mean is that they're going to be obnoxious. They're going to be overbearing and they aren't even going to really care that they're being a jerk to the people around them. And let's face it, we're seeing that in a lot of realms today. People rudely insulting our presidents and calling them names just because they disagree with him. I was appalled, appalled by the things that people who claim to follow Christ said about President Obama. Just as I'm appalled by the things that people who claim to call, follow Jesus are calling President Trump. But you know, it seems to have gone a step further. People shout down speakers because they disagree with them or they threaten violence and they pride themselves because they feel like they're refusing to compromise. They're standing up for what they believe. And whether you're standing up against a politician that you disagree with or marching against laws that legislate what you believe to be a sin or standing up for a cause you believe strongly in, rudeness and name calling is never part of God's plan. It's never part of God's plan for standing up for what you believe to be true. And scripture is extremely clear on this. Look at this passage from Ephesians chapter 4. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. This verse says that I can avoid compromising and avoid being influenced without being a jerk. I can speak the truth in a loving way. And um, I can 
do what needs to be done in a loving way. The verse says that I need to grow in every way to become more and more like Jesus. And Jesus always treated people that he disagreed with in a respectful way. The only exception was religious leaders who were trying to pull people away from the path of God. But those who were sinning, those who were in a lifestyle different than what Scripture taught, Jesus always spoke to them in a very loving way. And I need to be more and more like Christ. And that means reflecting the heart of Christ is as important as reflecting the truth of Christ. Reflecting the heart of Christ is as important as reflecting the truth of Christ. In fact, when we don't reflect the heart of Christ, it may mean we haven't really submitted to Jesus at all. Look at this verse. From Romans chapter 8, it says, but you are not ruled by your sinful selves. You are ruled by the Spirit if that Spirit of God really lives in you. But the person who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. If when I'm talking to people about an area where I think the Bible speaks clearly and while I'm refusing to compromise, if at that moment they don't see that I care for them, if they don't see that I love them and respect them, I'm not speaking the truth in love and I'm not showing the heart of Christ. And if I don't show the heart of Christ, I may not belong to Christ. If the spirit of Christ doesn't overflow in my life when I'm talking to people about things I disagree with them on, I may not belong to Christ according to that verse. Now, I admit this is a really hard area for me because I'm pretty good at debating. I'm a pretty good debater. And when someone wants to explain to me why what I believe is wrong or why what I believe is outdated, I have a good answer for their logic. I really do. Often it's a spiritual answer and often I could just level their logic. I know I could. I mean, I would be so right with my answer and so wrong with my attitude. You see, when you focus on being right, someone else has to be wrong. And I've told you, for about the last 20 years, I have been trying to focus on being biblical instead of being right. I want to be biblical, not right. You know why? Because when you are biblical, you're still correct. You're still speaking the truth, but you're doing it in the biblical way, the right way, the godly way, a Christ-like way. And... Um, when I'm biblical, I don't compromise the truth, but I do it in a loving and Christ-like way. And I'll be honest, it's so much more fun and uh, from a worldly standpoint to win the debate. But often winning the, the debate means I lose the ability to influence someone that God loves and cares about. And I can live without compromise without being a jerk. I can gently speak the truth in love sometimes in small doses over a long period of time, and I can protect the dignity of the person who disagrees with me while seeking to help them see the truth of God's word while insisting that they see the love of Jesus reflected in my heart and in my actions towards them. See, how I stand for the truth 
is as important as standing for the truth. The last truth I will share about living without compromise is I can live without compromise without confronting every error. I can live without compromise, without confronting every error. I remember in my 20s talking about a person who had been invited to minister at a service at a church across town, and um, that church disagreed with what our church taught on several subjects. Now, it was a church that honored Jesus. It was a church that followed him and helped people cross the line of faith and helped people uh, to grow in Christ but they just had some ideas about some key doctrines that were different from our church, and I think that they were not correct biblically, but I remember the pastor saying, well, it would not be a problem if I was invited to speak at that church. It would only be a problem if I was invited to speak a second time at that church. Now, I wasn't that smart in my 20s. I really wasn't. But even then, I knew that was a bad attitude. You see, he was basically saying, if you get invited to speak somewhere and you don't speak about what you disagree about, you've compromised your faith. You've failed God if you don't stand up and rail against what you disagree with them on. And that is just ridiculous. That's totally ridiculous. I mean... So every time I see a family member who is an atheist, I have to tell them why I think they're wrong or I'm compromising. And every time I see a person who's actively participating in sin, I have to call them out on it or I've compromised my faith. And how far does that go? I mean, when I go to the ballpark and I see someone who's had too many beers, do I have to confront them or I've compromised my faith? And when we're at a meal together and I and we see each other overeating do we have to uh, call each other on that or we're compromising our faith and when I hear a tv or radio pastor say something I don't think is right biblically am I required to call them and write to them and tell them how wrong they are some people who listen to live with impact think so because <laughs> we get their letters now, I firmly believe it's not my job to correct every error that I hear. I don't have to become militant about correcting everyone else because I know two things to be true. The first thing I know to be true is there is a Holy Spirit. God has promised when we belong to him that a part of him, the Holy Spirit, comes and lives inside of us, and it is the Holy Spirit's job to convince us of what is right and what is wrong, to lead us and guide us towards the right paths and away from the wrong paths. I know that there is a Holy Spirit. The second thing I know to be true is I'm not him. I'm not the Holy Spirit. God doesn't need me to be his watchdog. He doesn't need a guard dog. He doesn't need us to defend him or to defend the truth or to fight for him. He has the Holy Spirit. And he just needs people like us who will refuse to compromise on his truth. And I'm perfectly fine letting God's Holy Spirit take the lead on confronting error. So how does the Holy Spirit point out error? Well, let me point out three ways. The first is the Bible. That's the Holy Spirit's primary tool for pointing out errors. Look at this passage from 2 Timothy 3. 
The whole Bible was given to us by inspiration from God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and helps us do what is right. It is God's way of making us well-prepared at every point, fully equipped to do good to everyone. God uses the Bible when we read it and when we hear it taught to show us what is true and what is right. And that's why it's so important for you to be reading your Bible and feeding yourself spiritually on a consistent basis. You need more than one message a week to nourish your spiritual life. Growth groups are important too, and that helps. But you need to allow God to speak into your life to feed you as you read and study his word. And it's amazing to me how often God has corrected my attitude or helped me see where I was going down a wrong path using a scripture that just kind of jumps off the page as I'm reading the Bible or studying the Bible. The Holy Spirit also points out error through close Christian friends, through close Christian friends. Look at what it says in Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters, if someone in your group does something wrong, you who are spiritual should go to that person and gently help make him right again. But be careful because you might be tempted to sin too. Let me make sure that I'm really clear here. God uses people we have close relationships with to point out the error in our spiritual life. He usually doesn't ask a stranger to come up and tell us what we're doing wrong spiritually. And that tells me a couple of things. It tells me that if I don't build close Christian friendships, I'm closing a door that God may want to use to speak to me, to speak into my life. It also means if I don't build close Christian friendships, I may harm someone else who God wants to speak into their life through me. And do you know the best way to build that kind of friendship? Through growth groups. That's why we think growth groups are so important here because they help us to have people who can speak into our lives. But I need to caution some of you on this because some of you are already thinking of people that you want to confront about their error because I'm indicating that God uses close Christian friends. And God may want you to confront somebody, but first pray about it. Pray and ask if God really wants you to do that or if it's your frustration especially if you're a parent thinking about talking to your children because parents often assume that God wants them to be the one to speak to their kids, but sometimes God wants parents just to love and be quiet while they pray that God will send someone else who their children will hear to speak into their lives. And sometimes parents talking to their kids is actually counterproductive rather than helpful. Second, the person with a relationship, uh, the person's relationship with Jesus should guide how we speak to them. It should guide how we point out error. Here is a key. We don't expect people who are not Christians to act like Christians until they are Christians. Some of you are thinking, well, I have people who are not followers of Jesus who are in my life and they're committing these horrible sins and these, they're uh, doing all of these things that are totally unchristian. Well, of course they are. We don't expect people who aren't Christians to act like Christians until they are Christians. And so if you need to uh, 
confront somebody who's not a Christian, you probably want to explain to them why their behavior is harmful, not why it's unchristian. Their relationship with Jesus ought to uh, affect how you approach them. And so if the person that you want to confront uh, of an error isn't a follower of Jesus, be very careful. You see, God wants them to cross the line of faith more than he wants them confronted about their sin or their error. So be very careful about confronting them. The last way God's spirit uses to point out error is the elders of the church. The elders of the church. In fact, it is specifically the job of the elders to protect the church from false teaching. Look at what Titus chapter 1 says. An elder must be faithful to the same true message we teach. Then he will be able to encourage others with teaching that is true and right. And he will be able to show those who are against this teaching that they are wrong. This is why I don't confront television preachers or radio pastors or pastors of other churches when they teach something that I think is wrong. God has a plan for correcting them. God has given that responsibility to the elders or the leaders and overseers of that church. And our eldership takes this job very seriously. We determine what impact believes based on what the Bible teaches, and we determine what our doctrinal statement says. This isn't something that we will ever put up for a vote within our church. It will never change based on public opinion. You see, God holds us accountable. He holds us accountable for making sure that his truth is taught here without compromise. And so we're going to take that very seriously. Please pray for your elders. Another word for elders, pastor, pray for us as we seek to hold to the truth without compromise. So compromise might be an okay thing in some relationships and in negotiations, but spiritually, we have got to live without compromise. We uh, follow Jesus fully without compromise. In fact, we really want, if we really want to succeed in life, we've got to live without compromising his truth. Look at what Proverbs chapter 3 says. If you want favor with both God and man and a reputation for good judgment and common sense, then trust the Lord completely. Don't ever trust yourself. In everything you do, put God first, and he will direct you and crown your efforts with success. Mother Teresa was once asked, what advice do you have for new Christians, for young Christians? And she said, follow Jesus and not the Jesus of people's imagination." Follow Jesus and not the Jesus of people's imaginations. You realize, don't you, that many times when Jesus is discussed in the American culture, it's not the Jesus that we read about in Scripture. It's a Jesus of people's imaginations. So my advice to you would be the same as Mother Teresa's. Trust and follow the Jesus revealed in the word, the true Jesus, not the Jesus invented by people who seek to compromise the truth. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, you have been trying to speak to each one of us in a number of ways. And Father, please help us to listen 
to you because, Father, none of us want to wander away from you. Not, none of us want to find ourselves subtly uh, compromising your truth. And so, Father, we thank you for your spirit that guides us into all truth using the Bible and close Christian friends and the elders of the church. And, Father, I pray right now that you will help all of us all of us to cling to Jesus, to trust the true Jesus, not the Jesus of people's imaginations. And Father, we pray that we might be able to stand for the truth of Christ, but that we might also always demonstrate the heart of Christ, that we might be able to always speak the truth, but to always do it in a godly, loving, Christ-like way. Father, I pray right now for those that are struggling that you might use this time to just open their heart to your truth, to your love, to your grace. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.